Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Nicole LaPera is a clinical psychologist who trained at Cornell and the New School. She's also the founder of The Holistic Psychologist, which began as an Instagram account but has bloomed into a global online community. Her new book, How To Be The Love You Seek, is a guide to healing your relationships. She sat down with Hannah McInnes to tell us more. Can you just tell us first about the title? Because, well, it's a big, bold title. Just explain what you're saying in How To Be The Love You Seek. There's a lot in the title. The title for me is so representative of my own individual journey in terms of my own relationship experience as well as my own, uh, my past journey when I was a traditional couples and family therapist. What I saw yeah. in myself, what I saw in others, what you might be experiencing, all of you who are tuned in here today, is this idea or desire to find love from outside of ourself. Right? This idea that our needs get met, people can give us the emotion that we're looking for. And I traveled from relationship to relationship. For me, it was deeply desiring what I would call emotional connection continuing to feel emotionally disconnected, usually complaining to the partner that I was with at the time until the relationship would come to an end and I would go on to find the more perfect relationship where I wouldn't feel that way. And I saw similar patterns in the couples that I would work with um, where many of us, I think, are looking for feelings outside of ourself, for our needs to be met outside of ourself. So for me, this learning and embodiment and now title of my new book, represents a bit of unlearning that I think all of us can do as adults. Many of us have learned a version of relationship of love based in our childhood experiences that doesn't allow us the depth, the emotional fulfillment, the authentic connections that we're looking for. And of course, as all of my work hopes to empower the choices that we can make to embody the safety and the security in ourselves and then practice or extend, I should say, that safety and security into all of our relationships. So you alluded to it there a little bit, but I wonder what ideas that society has about relationships, that society gives us about relationships, this book is a response to. I think some of them are, or many of them, I should say, are colored by the beliefs and lived experience that we've had in our families of origin, which is where we learn the most about relationships. I also think society and the way relationships are represented gives us a lot of these beliefs that I don't think are necessarily helpful. Really common ones, in my opinion, are this idea that there is a perfect individual or perfect type of relationship in which we'll miraculously feel all of the things that many of us have never felt across our lifetime, yet this idea that they, the person, Right, we'll be able to instill these feelings, this level of fulfillment, this level of connection within us. I think that's not only inaccurate and sets an expectation up for someone or something to create an experience that we haven't yet had ourselves. I think it keeps many of us endlessly searching and feeling shameful when we don't have the relationship experiences that we want. It's very disempowering. I think another really common one is this idea that with this hypothetical right person, things will be easy. It'll be conflict-free, this kind of fairy tale version of relating to another individual. And something that I've had to learn on my own journey is not only is that impossible, 
we are two unique individuals, you know, or whoever it is that we're relating to, we're different. And within that difference comes moments of disagreement, moments of conflict, moments when there's two opposing sense of needs or wants. And what is most important is not searching or having this idea as I had for decades that conflict was to be avoided. At the first sign of conflict in a relationship, I would consider, well, this must not be the person that I'm looking for. I think a much more empowering shift of focus and teaching really for our mind and bodies is how to navigate these moments of disagreement, how to stay calm and grounded and actually be interested in a different perspective, different wants and different needs so that we can truly show up in support of another person and of course receive the support that so many of us are looking for. So would you say there's no such thing as a perfect relationship or if you have mastered what you're describing, is that then the perfect relationship? I think what a safe and secure relationship, that's how I would define what a perfect relationship could be akin to, feels calm, feels grounded. We're able to be in our bodies, understanding what our perspectives are, what we're feeling emotionally. We feel safe to express our perspectives, our emotions, to be in our authentic state of expression. And at the same time, we gift the loved ones around us, our partners, our friends, whoever they might be, the opportunity to know them, to connect with them authentically as they are. I think that's what many of us are, are looking for. What I come to realize as I continue to share um, more and more of my own journey, I think two things are true for a lot of us. A, we feel very alone in our suffering. And when we hear other people sharing similar experiences, we feel less alone, right? We don't feel like it's something wrong with us as we see these same struggles um, reflected in other people. And at the same time, I think what most of us are looking for is the ability to be seen, to be known, not to be changed, not to have very well-meaning people around us offering us advice about what they would do differently, just that space to be as we are, however it is that we are in any given moment. So that's what I would define as quote unquote perfect in terms of a relationship, the safety and the security to be in true interaction, presence, and ultimately emotional connection then with those, all of those around us. And in order to be as we are in any given moment, to sort of be in touch with our authentic self, you sort of describe that really we have to go back to our childhood. Is that everyone? Are you talking to everyone? Do you feel that at some stage in their life, in their childhood, everybody was not able to fully express themselves as they would have liked to? Or is that only certain people in certain types of upbringing? So imagining as I was even describing this, ideal, safe, and secure relationship. Imagine many of you listening might have been like, well, I don't feel that way. Um, again, the way we feel, the way we relate to other people is so greatly impacted by those first relationship experiences, whatever they might be. The way that we yeah. now think and what things that we believe about ourselves were impacted by what we were made to think, directly or indirectly, or made to believe about ourselves in early childhood the way we are emotionally connected to ourselves, express our emotions within the relationships or to the world around us is directly 
connected or impacted by the level of emotional attunement of our caregivers and their ability to more consistently than not soothe us when we were stressed or when we were upset. And then ultimately, the way we relate to or connect with the relationships or the people around us is directly impacted by the things that we had to do or stop doing in childhood to maintain the connections to our caregivers on which we were dependent for physical survival. So the reason why I do think quite globally, and I saw this in the community as it was developing on the social media account, very few of us I have yet to meet, I make this joke though, I mean it wholeheartedly when I say I've yet to meet a really safe and secure, grounded adult because of no fault of our caregiver's own, the large majority of us were raised by individuals who, from their own past circumstances, what they had happened or not happened in their own childhoods, for a lot of them, what was happening contextually outside of their home, sociologically, politically, for their lack of resources available to many of our caregivers. I mean, there comes a time, I cite this often because it's mind-blowing to me, where even my field, where the parenting experts were speaking from, there was a lot of parenting advice being given in what we call a behaviorist model or simply the way we would train an animal. Reward positive behaviors or things that you want to continue and punish the things that you want to stop. And that mindset was applied to child raising. There wasn't talk of emotions, of emotional attunement, of the impact that that has on our developing nervous system. And then of course, the large majority of caregivers that we were raised by who had their own trauma from their own past experience. This is one of those areas where we could be very well-meaning, have had parents that want to avoid repeating the cycles, the harm, the abuse, the suffering that had happened to them, maybe even read all of the books, gained all of the insight or information. What is more impactful on a child's development is not what's being said or instructed in those pivotal moments, it's the child's experience of the caregiver. So if they didn't have and didn't know how to create safety and security in themselves and therefore in their relationship with us as developing humans, then to simply answer the question, there are very few of us as adults who have that level of safety and security that we're able to create in our own relationships. So what people listening might feel is that they want to move forward and they want to work on themselves in the way that you suggest. But for many people, it feels painful. People question continually interrogating the past, going back to the past. For some of us, we might be quite old now, and that's a long time ago. But that work, I mean, in your last book, it was how to do the work, but that work of interrogating the past, looking back to those relationships, figuring out what who you were, what you were deprived, and how that informs who you are now, are you saying that is essential if you want to have good relationships and the best relationships you can? This journey of becoming conscious or present to all of that, which created the world that we're creating, the habits and patterns that are creating the world that we're creating, especially in our relationships, is really brave. It's really courageous. A lot of us are becoming present to deep-rooted pain. Right? This idea even that that happened back then I don't, yeah. I don't want to look even directly. Some of us might think that. I don't want to think about those things anymore. It's too painful. The reality of it is, even if we're not consciously thinking about it, we're recreating 
those habits and patterns that were formed at that painful time in our day-to-day life, especially within our relationships. So I think a similar question I often get outside of those of us that don't want to right look at that past pain, even the decision, I don't want to go there as a protection. I don't want to feel that is essentially what we're saying. One of the things I became a bit aware of very clearly in my own life, somewhere around high school, when I would hear my friends recalling their childhood experiences, you know, telling me their first memories or what their Christmas looked like growing up. I, I noticed in myself, and for a while I thought something was structurally wrong with my memory, with my brain in particular, I couldn't recall what happened to me. And so a similar question I get is, well, what if I can't go back and call to mind, let alone the fact that I want to or don't want to, I can't, there's really nothing there that comes to mind when I go to think of my past. Yeah, that's just to say, I mean, they, in many ways and really fascinatingly, they could be linked like whether you don't want to and can't remember. But yes, fascinating. Sorry to interrupt. I appreciate that. They could be linked. And I was, I want to go into what, why, why that is. If some of you are relating to that and maybe considering there is something wrong with you, there isn't developmentally um, when we're in that very, you know, dependent early stage, our brain and our nervous system are developing throughout our Mm twenties. And as our brain is developing the stress, if we don't have that attuned caregiver, if dangerous, scary things are happening in our, in our relationships, in our home, outside of our home, depending on what's going on in our communities, right, or our societies in general, cortisol is the main hormone of stress that's released in our body. It helps activate our body when we need to deal with the stressful event. If we are under consistent exposure to cortisol while our brain is developing, one of the major areas that is impacted is what is called the hippocampus. And it's one of the areas that's responsible or that plays a role in our ability to recall what it is that happened. So for me, that was relieving. Now I could give away this or I could, you know, release the idea that, oh, I have something wrong structurally in my brain. Yes, something structurally was impacted in my brain. And it was because of the consistent cortisol that was happening around the stress in my home around the stress outside of my home, living in a city environment where unsafe things were happening to me and not having that emotional attunement I needed. Now, listeners might be hearing that I'm being very particular and saying recall because the answer to all of this and your question ultimately, Hannah, do I have to go back, right? What if if I can't go back? Our mind and body, while it might not be able to recall or tell the story of what happened, we are a living memory of what happened. So we will see as we become present to our current, the current ways we're showing up, first and foremost, foundationally, even in care of our physical bodies, in care of our emotional worlds, how we're relating not only to ourselves in that way, though to others in our relationships. And we can begin in each and every moment now in adulthood, however old it is that you're beginning this journey, and there is no too old to change. Our mind and bodies, our neuroplastics are, are capable of change throughout our lifetime. And it truly begins with becoming present to the choices that many of us are making on that autopilot, to those moments of reactivity where we might know better and want to do better, but we can't seem to stop those instinctual actions that come. And by making new choices, oftentimes including caring for our body in new ways, tending to our nervous system in new ways, teaching our mind and body how to deal with stressful and upsetting experiences, learning how to be authentic 
in our interactions with others, then we could create change, shift the living memory that we are by creating the new habits and patterns that better serve ourselves and our relationships. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered, and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p, with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before. It's so interesting, and I want um, certainly to talk about, as you do in the book, ways of creating those habits and looking after our bodies and uh, sort of searching in our subconscious and our soul but just very briefly to dwell a little moment longer on what you were just saying if you are looking to interrogate those past relationships as you say is so central and it comes across in the book it is so central for moving forward do you recommend talking to those people involved is that the ultimate way to do it to to sit down with your caregivers and go through what, you, what you're feeling. Because obviously in dwelling on your uh, relationships that are to be and making those as wholesome and, and the best relationships possible, there's a risk of fracturing past relationships. A couple things are coming to mind. It's natural. The first thing I want to start with is it's natural. As we become aware of how those early relationships impacted us, I think instinctually we do feel like we want to have the conversation, like we want to share our new perspective or awareness with our loved ones, our caregivers in particular. And ultimately what we typically then want is agreement, validation. We want someone to say, yes, that is how it was for you, little Nicole, right? And maybe even we want an acknowledgement or an apology, right? I am sorry that these things happened. With that, right, while I think that's a natural impulse desire, even some of us want to extend, wow, I feel so much better now that I'm present to these things. Mom, dad, or whomever, I want you to be on this life-changing journey alongside of me. We cannot control how someone else receives our new awareness, our new perspective. We cannot make, as many of you who have been on this journey, it's a daily commitment to creating these new choices. We cannot make someone make those daily commitments to creating change. We cannot make someone hear our perspective because a difficult reality that all of us as humans have to navigate is we might not share perspectives. And I think the most common you know, way, and those of us who have siblings, um, for me, I have siblings that are, too, that are much older than me. I have a sister who's 15 years older than me and a brother who's 18 years older than me. And I've come to be really acutely aware of how different our perceptions and experiences were, even in our same shared childhood home. And that applies to not even those of you who have this great age difference, maybe between siblings. It could even apply to you and your friend having sharing a similar experience and having completely different takeaway perspectives of that experience. 
So now complicating that, if we're going to a caregiver and we want them to acknowledge maybe some of the hurt that they participated in causing us, now not only might not that align with their perspective of what happened, it might be very painfully emotionally difficult for them to offer us that validation or that acknowledgement. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, I think the the healing, we still need to take all of those moments to be present to our own pain, to be present to our own suffering. Some of us might not even have access or it might not be safe to engage in conversations with some of our caregivers. Some of them might not be alive or not present in our lives for whatever reason. Though we can still gain healing by creating the time and space to embody our own lived experience, to be with all of the ways we feel about whatever happened or didn't happen And of course, those of us that choose to have conversations with the caregivers, our siblings, or whomever it was that played a part in it, if the only intention of those conversations that we enter is to get that validation or to get that apology, we might set ourselves up for disappointment. If we can hold that intention, because of course, naturally, we're going to have that as part of our desire. If we could also walk away from that conversation regardless of how they received it or slam the door on our face, not wanting to hear it, if we could still stay affirmed and validated in our own perspective of what it is that had happened and how it's impacting us, then we can continue to heal even without the alignment in terms of what they think happened. And switching, as you often do in the book, to people who are listening who are also the caregiver, the parents, you have lots of advice throughout the book about how to help, how to be the parent that has the child that is able to be secure and safe in their relationships. Things like making sure you give time for yourself uh, because your child will perceive that. Parenting, I wanna first begin by acknowledging the enormity of the role that that is. To care for another human, to care for a human throughout stages of development where they can't even communicate (laughs) what it is that they want or that they need, to be attuned in that way is such an enormous and foundational role that all of you parents play. And again, this is one of those areas, like I was referencing earlier, where having the right script, right, knowing the right thing to say in the moment where our child needs us is going to be so much less impactful than how are they feeling within their connection with us? How safe and secure do they even feel to come to us to tell us what it is that is really going on? Which then illustrates the importance of the parent's self-care, of the parent's ability to regulate their own nervous system to create that energetic feeling of safety and security. And nowhere, I think, is the conditioning stronger around this idea that to be a good parent is to be in constant service to our children at all hours of the day, at all hours of the night, and that it is quote-unquote selfish to factor our own individual needs in to that relational equation. And again, the cliche, I think, that I bring up so often that most of us love to hate is like the oxygen mask. It took me until more recently to really just simply understand why we're always instructed in an airplane to put our oxygen mask on first. Well, because if I've passed out, I can't put the oxygen. I can't help 
the person in the seat next to me. So if as parents, you're constantly neglecting or overstepping your body's physical needs, if you're constantly suppressing your emotional needs, if you're not taking a moment when you're overstressed and overreactive to, to calm and regulate your own mind and body, then you're only going to continue those reactive patterns within your relationship, sometimes feeling even worse, shameful when you say and do things that you don't mean or when you detach because you're completely shut down and you can't be emotionally or physically present with your children. So much of the book is kind of based on that foundational idea to be love for someone else, to offer support for someone else, to be compassionate to someone else, to understand someone else really is a journey in factoring ourselves first and foremost into that equation so that we can quite literally physiologically offer the care, the compassion, the love, and that point for parents in particular of safe co-regulation for our children. Absolutely. I mean, I feel like it's permanently about us reframing, reevaluating, analyzing this quite thin line between selfish and selfless because many people I think particularly of a certain generation would turn around to you and say but is that not selfish and actually the lesson I feel that you are imparting all the way through is actually just look at that differently it's selfless caring for yourself and your children will see that and understand that Um, and I feel like I could talk about that with you for the whole rest half hour but I can't because there's so much else to ask you about particularly about the body which is so central to this and you talk about the roadmap to connecting with yourself, which is so important, your embodied self, which is so important to being available for people in in, in the right, secure way. And the first thing is your immediate physical body. Could you explain that? Our physical body, um, I adapt it. One of the images that you'll find in the book is an adaptation of, I don't know if listeners are familiar with Abraham Maslow and his hierarchy of needs. I have an adapted, it. there it is, perfect, simplified version just, of that. Uh, yeah, there we go. Yes, and at the bottom, you'll see physical needs, and then you'll see emotional needs in the middle of that pyramid, and then spiritual needs at the top. And for us to be able to be that safe and secure connection, offer that within our relationships, to be ourselves and offer others a possibility to be in an interdependent relationship, which means I'm me and you're you, and together, We can honor all of our similarities, all of our differences, all of our uniqueness, all of our strengths. Then even more so to be able to consider things or feel like the creative being that each of us are, tapping into our imagination, feeling purposeful and passionate. These are all things I I write about in books. I write about other people having these, you know, feelings or moments or drives, I should say, in their life. And it took me decades to be able to embody that experience. And so for anyone listening who's like, oh, these are all nice ideas, it's not because as I once thought, I I missed that genetic component. I'm not purposeful. I'm not passionate. I'm, I'm not creative. I'm not imaginative. It's because my base level needs weren't met. And when we're not meeting our body's physical needs, the signals that our body is going to be sending to our mind, our mind and body are always in two-way communication. So for, for decades in my field, we would just overemphasize the power of the mind to create change, yeah. right? I think new thoughts, I feel new ways, I act in new ways. The body is sending, if not more powerful, information up to our brain. 
And when our physical needs are not met, we're in what I call survival mode where our immediate focus and attention, focus and attention is on the exact, the immediate minute or uh, the immediate moment at hand and conversations like supporting someone else, being who I am, being that imaginative, purposeful, passionate, creative being is not a, an energetic priority for my physiological body. So that's why body is so important, so foundational. The beginning part of my book will focus us all on reconnecting with our body so that we can begin to assess our body's core needs, which are needs for nutrients. All of our cells, all of our organs function with nutrients, certain nutrients, and with water. Those are things that universally all of our human body physiologically needs. It also needs moments of rest, restorative sleep at night, I think the average being somewhere upwards of eight hours. And I invite you, you listeners right here to assess kind of how many hours are you really sleeping? Do you get into bed? Do you fall asleep quickly? Do you stay asleep? Do you feel refreshed in the mornings when you wake up? And on the other side of that, right, we need movement. Our muscles need to move to whatever extent it is possible within our physical bodies to discharge some of the energy we're energetic beings that we accumulate throughout the day and we also need oxygen it's one of these are the systems we're breathing outside of our awareness it's keeping ourselves oxygenated and alive day in and day out paying attention to how we're breathing are we getting nourishing deep calming breaths or are is our breath more reflective quick and shallow are we holding our breath constricting our midsections, all indicators that our body might be in those survival modes. So becoming aware of how your body even feels right now. How do your muscles feel? Do they feel weak? Do they feel heavy? Do they feel tense? All markers that you might be sending those stressful messages to your body, I mean, to your mind. This is why, again, affirmations, telling yourself we're peace and calm if all day long your muscles are sending those tense signals you will think racing thoughts, stressful thoughts, upsetting thoughts, worries about the future. Beginning to pay attention again to how are you sleeping at night? Are you taking moments of rest throughout your day? How are you breathing? Is it calm and deep or is it shallow, quick, constricted, holding your breath? So by paying attention to the current state of your body and then by staying committed to making new choices, to making sure that we're eating that nourishing food, that we're getting into bed a bit earlier if we are struggling in terms of sleep, that we're staying committed to even a minute a day to stretching or moving our muscles in some way, to maybe beginning to teach our body through intentional breath work, which could even just be five deep belly breaths in this moment. I even invite you to do it and consistently practicing those choices so that we're building that bottom foundation, shifting ourselves. For some of us, we spent a lifetime in survival mode. So that over time, because of course it doesn't happen immediately overnight, the messages that our body begins to send our mind is calm, is grounded, is at peace, and is able to be interested and connected and in support of someone else. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments 
Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's quite difficult now as the interviewer because I'm just taking my deep breaths and going into a state of immense <laughs> relaxation. Can I, can I stay here? Um, when I, I, I slightly putting my notes aside because I want to pick up on so many really interesting things that you're saying and the thoughts... The question that comes to me is this is I was just thinking as you were speaking of it's a vicious circle. If you are struggling in your relationships or in an area of your life which is related to those relationships and you want to be a better person within them, sometimes that causes all those physical symptoms that you were just talking about. And it's hard, isn't it, to address those first, to put your body in that place that it should be because that quickened breath and those stressful symptoms come from the thing you're trying to be show up better for. This, I think, often is the realization that many of us have as we, you know, embark, gain some traction, if you will, on our own individual journeys. And then yet still, it's within our relationships where this stress, this upset continues to happen. Because again, it is within our first earliest relationship where even so much of our beliefs about ourselves were created, where so much of this deep-rooted wounding was created when we didn't have those safe and secure caregivers for all of the reasons we talked about earlier. So then it is within these relationships that naturally become the point of continued stress and activation and upset and to speak to your very beautiful point, Hannah, it does become, and this is what I would see time and time again in the couples I would work with and why I would feel so disempowered as a therapist, the person right being paid to help create shift and change. We could have no amount of beautiful, insightful communication in the calm, grounded presence of our treatment room, and yet week after week, the same couples would come in and say, we had that same argument again. I erupt it in the same way or another, I shut down in the same way. So I speak to this to hopefully relieve maybe some of the shame that some of you might be feeling. And even the subtitle of, of the book itself is break patterns, break cycles. I mean, cycles are the patterns that so many of us have passed, been created in dynamics with another person. And then we continue to recreate in the relationships or dynamics in our current life. Though that is not to say, the hope shift of this message is not to say that change isn't possible. It is change happens when we become conscious of the role we're playing. What are the moments beginning to notice? Here is the action step. The more connected we get with our body, the more we can become aware of, okay, what are the moments where my stress cycles begin? What's happening in my body so I can begin to tune in and make choices at a sooner time before I call us getting to the point of no return where those habits just take over. And then we tune back in somewhere after the fact, usually feeling shameful or hurt. Mm. What's happening in my body? Also, because my body is always in communication with my mind. What is happening in my mind? Because object, reality isn't objective. We're not all seeing and experiencing something that we could all agree on is happening. Our mind is constantly making and assigning meanings to the events that are happening around us. And the more we pay attention 
the more we'll notice. We don't tell ourselves unique stories about what's happening. We revisit the same narratives often that are connected to our early childhood experiences at a time and a place where we could only make sense of the world, usually in this very immature way. And then we continue to put that as a filter over the current happenings or non-happenings, if you will, in our current relationships. So as we become aware of all of our side of the street, if you will, then we can begin, like I said earlier, because we can't shift or change the way our loved one or our partner is showing up, we could make new choices to stay responsive, to maybe have a compassion for ourselves when we are past that point of no return. So instead of shaming ourselves on the other side of saying and doing something we didn't mean or disconnecting in a way when we want it to be connected, we could understand why that happened. We can then extend that compassion to our loved ones when we are on the receiving end of them, you know, having their own habitual nervous system driven reactions. And with that consciousness, the two steps that I think always create change gives us then the opportunity. There are things we can do outside of those daily foundational practices I mentioned in terms of caring for our body. As we're noticing our jaw clenching when our partner is saying that same thing or that narrative is going through my mind, I can feel my heart rate elevating. Now I'm in, when I'm in that conscious state of awareness, not driven into just whatever happens or whatever it is that I do next, now I can be an active participant. I can take a moment to maybe slow and deepen my breath, to release my clenched fist, right, my clenched jaw, to take a moment even away from the interaction to calm myself down so that when I'm now showing up in interaction with someone, I'm much more responsive as opposed to just recreating or allowing those same habitual nervous system driven cycles to be yeah. recreated. People listening or reading your book might say, well, they won't reading your book because they'll have the information right there, but feel, is this worth it? It's such effort. It's such struggle. You say the narratives that come up in relationships are some of the toughest, most traumatic narratives and wonder, well, isn't it better just to be on my own then? You know, why bother with all these relationships? We are interpersonal creatures, meaning we need relationship. Outside of even that developmental state of dependency that I was describing earlier, we carry that need throughout our lifetime. I think a lot about kind of our ancestral lineage, if you will, just humanity, right, in general. And the reason why we were able to essentially thrive, like populate, I know that there's very difficult circumstances that some of us, some of you are, you know, exposed to in your current environments. But the reason why the species of humanity is around still and as prolific as it is, is the ability to join together in relationship. In ancestral times, to join together in groups, forming a village, right? Allowing for division of just objective labor, making sure that all sides, you know, are protected from the possible outsiders that could come in and take their resources, making sure that there are individuals to go and gather the resources and cook the resources. There's emotional protection that comes along with relationships. There's been numerous studies that illustrate when we have the experience of exclusion, of isolation, 
of loneliness when we're not included, right, in that group that we need to be included. It activates the physical pain center of our brain, meaning not only is it an emotional hurt, not belonging, being on the outside, it's a physical hurt that we experience. So why bother to answer that question? We can't get away from that need. We retain that need, even if we are living in isolation, feeling lonely by choice, maybe staying away, swearing off relationship. We still have that intrinsic desire and need. And so learning, of course, I think all of our relationships, the different ones that we'll choose to be in will look different based on our individual, you know, once needs, desire, self-expression. That's another hope that I have and unlearning in terms of being the love we seek. I think so many of us, kind of back to the question in the beginning of ideas of relationships that I'm hoping to debunk, if you will. Mm. I think so many of us put a universal definition on relationships, meaning I, and I invite us all to even think right now, what is your idea of what a friendship is? Oh, a friendship does this sort of thing, right? We tend to universalize friendship, family relationship, romantic relationship. And then we try to squish all of these unique individuals that we interact with in all of those relational ways into that one size fits all model. And the reality, I believe, and a takeaway I hope is what I've come to be aware of all of my friendships look a little different. I relate to each individual that I'm friends with in a different way. I share different interests, different activities, different emotional connections. It doesn't make any relationship better or worse than the other, just different. And I can then intentionally curate my life so that I'm going to the people that can support me emotionally with my emotional needs in that way. And then I'm celebrating my other interest within those other relationships. And I think, again, all of this goes back to we need to relate in some way with individuals, our relationships externally. And if we can welcome the difference in our relationships, I think we set ourselves up to succeed and to be more fulfilled across all of our relationships because one person cannot be available. This even goes back to parenting. I think this, the, the research indicates that that safety and security that I keep citing that children need in childhood, they don't need it, nor is it possible to offer that to an individual, even our children on whom they're dependent on us, 100% of the time. I think to create a safe and secure attachment, and this might be relieving for some of you listeners, we need to have that attuned presence and that soothing co-regulation from an individual 30% of the time. So again, when we think or go to our loved ones or our romantic partners with this idea that you need to be present every moment that I need you to be, and when I close myself off from other opportunities from, for support outside of that primary relationship, not only am I putting an unrealistic expectation on that person, which is going to cause me upset when they're naturally not available because they have something happening in their life. They're going through their own emotional moment, and they can't be present to me. It's going to cause a lot of frustration on their part because I truly believe that we want to be in service, be supportive, be connected with individuals. And I think, again, when we expand 
these definitions, when we open ourselves up for new ways of relating to people, we can get, get gather, gain the support that we both want to receive and also want to give. Well, I have lots more questions, but I can't ask you them because also the audience has questions and brilliant questions at that. So I'm going to move to theirs. And um, just starting off uh, with an anonymous who hasn't uh, given their name, how to make someone trust you again or build the trust back in your relationships when you've hurt them so much emotionally? Thank you for that question. Yes, thank you for that question. And I want to commend whoever asked that or all of us as we become aware of the hurt that we cause in relationship. I think the, the gift we can give our relationships are twofold so much to say that A, we can acknowledge the action or inaction and be curious, not just assume what, what they are feeling in impact, hold space to hear how it was for them when we violate it or create it the breach and trust. And then the second gift of that twofold is we can give them the time and space to decide if and when they want to open themselves up to rebuild that trust. I think it's so natural, right? If we've gone through the brave process of acknowledging to ourselves the hurt we've caused, acknowledging to them the hurt we've caused, curiously hearing how they, you know, are impacted, we immediately want to go into that repair. We want to go into, let's feel better now. Let's rebuild this. And for different reasons, the person on the receiving end of our hurt might need time, might need space. And what we can do then in practical is remain that calm, grounded presence, hear what it is that they're saying the impact was without reacting, and then continuing to show up in alignment, in consistency, in our word and action. That's, I think, a gesture of rebuilding trust, doing what we say we're going to do remaining calm and grounded regardless of what they're doing, not doing what they're saying in any given moment. And then allowing them their side of the equation, which is to give someone or to rebuild trust. There's two people. I can act in a trustworthy way. And at some point that other person is going to have to open themselves up again to trusting. And that's, I think the most difficult part because each of us are on our different timelines in terms of that. And it's so natural to want it to happen near immediately, especially when we're doing our side of that equation. A question from Amy. I would like to ask Dr. Pereira, um, Le Pereira how to navigate rejection in relationships and particularly in romantic relationships, but also within a family. Rejection, again, back to that pain. I'm happy I spoke to that earlier. Um, I want us all to be present to how deeply painful rejection is, especially the many of us who have had or experienced in those earliest relationships, a core rejection, caregivers that physically left. For me, I had physically present caregivers, though emotional absence. So all of the emotional rejecting moments that I experienced, right? And so all of us understanding that as, if, and when whether or not someone actually right, rejected us in, in our current relationships, whether we're seeing rejection where it might not even be present or assigning a personalized meaning, right? Someone doesn't want to continue a relationship with us. It must be because of us. There might be a million reasons why someone is moving away from a relationship that have nothing to do necessarily with us at all. Though I'm emphasizing this first point 
because rejection is physically painful. It causes a lot of emotions, some of which are very shame-based emotions. So really honoring the emotional experience, the deep-rooted pain that comes with rejection, especially hearing in the question when it happens within that core family unit in our you know, current relationships, how painful it is to have the people with whom we want to belong so desperately. So to handle it, again, isn't just telling yourself you don't need them anyway or you know, whatever it is that we try to do, it's being with the pain. For some of us, the compounded pain of it bringing us back to right, the current person who doesn't want a relationship with us for whatever reason brings us right back in time to our mom or dad or whomever it was choosing not to be in active relationship with us for whatever reason that it was and allowing ourselves the, the time to grieve to feel all of the different ways that we feel and then to show up right in that conscious state of awareness. We now as adults get to decide and relationships shift and change for many different reasons, many of which have nothing to do with us. I think many of which many of us know or have this experience as we heal and change and change dynamics. We might be the ones choosing to separate or distance ourselves from relationships, sometimes from core relationships I remember I took about a year and a half in complete separation from my relationships with my family. Not necessarily anything a fault of their own because I needed that time and space to rediscover who I was outside of relationship with them. And very gratefully on the other side of it, we've been able to rebuild much deeper, more authentic relationship connections. So relationship shift and change, I think the way to heal is to be present to all of the ways we feel, whether or not we're the person who's been rejected or I think this is another common thing we assume, well, I made the change in the relationship. I shouldn't be upset or this person wasn't good for me. I should be fine with this absence. And that's not the reality. So allowing ourselves the emotional space to be with all of the pain of it and then using whatever is happening or not happening in terms of our relationships is just information to continue to choose how it is that we want to interact with these people. Um, I'm on a personal level. It's wonderful to hear that about your relationships with your family, because I think that's where we left you with your last book. So um, it's great to hear that that was a worthwhile exercise. Kieran says, thank you. You've helped me immensely in my own journey through trauma and being my authentic self. Any tips for distraction and procrastination, which I struggle with? Distraction and procrastination are often, as we were talking about earlier, behavioral, if you will, signals of a nervous system reaction. When we're distracting ourselves with whatever, scrolling on social media, even sometimes thinking we're helping, reading endless self-help books and not being present to what's present, maybe emotionally for us in each of those moments, distracting at the moment where something uncomfortable is coming up for ourselves. I have different, I label different nervous system states, uh, different modes, and one of them is specifically called distractor mode. So mm -hmm. for a lot of us, and the reason why I'm going into this is understanding that that might be a signal. The reason why you can't hold your attention on what you in intend to might be your body's way of communicating something, there's something stressful or upsetting beneath the surface. Procrastination is 
the final step on our nervous system journey. If we're not able to fight the threat at hand, screaming, yelling, overcoming it, like overpowering it, I should say, those are the behavioral um, examples of what that could look like. I call it eruptor mode. If we're not able to distract ourselves away, as I just talked about, if we then, right, if we can't fight it, if we can't flee it, the last thing we'll do, very much like animals do, we'll play dead. We'll detach. We'll shut down. And that looks like, as I was describing the body earlier, when we procrastinate, oftentimes it's because we lack motivation. We don't have the energy. We know all the things that we have to do. We might even rehearse those in our mind, yet we feel frozen, stuck to the couch. And a lot of us tend to shame ourselves when we're in that shutdown or that frozen state. The, the scientific term is dorsal vagal state. It's the final step, like I said, on the nervous system reaction ladder, as we call it. It's our body's way of protecting ourselves. We can't seem to summon the energy, the desire. Some, for some of us, very quickly, that leads into feelings of hopelessness, helplessness, shame. I can't do anything. I'm so unmotivated. And I'm specifically, again, sharing all of this because that's actually your body's very adaptive way of dealing with, for a lot of us, and maybe for you, Kieran, as well, a lifetime of stressful and upsetting emotions that have been suppressed beneath the surface. So the more we become present to what we're distracting ourselves away from or the overwhelming emotions that cause that frozen or that shutdown state, the more then we can make intentional choices to reconnect with our body and to reconnect ultimately then with the world, with our motivation, with our interest, and with our ability to action. Uh, we've got time, um, I think, let's try, try and fit them in. Um, how can you navigate time and space uh, with aging parents where they need you but still hurt you in the process? That's from Charlie. That's very, I think, a difficult, A, aging death endings of relationships are, I think, universally very existentially difficult um, for us as humans. And I think then the reality of the level of dependency that goes up um, in terms of our aging parents and their need for our physical presence, our physical care. Um, like children, never is it more important to take and make sure we're building in moments outside of that hurtful interaction, that hurtful relationship, some of which we can't avoid because they are dependent now on us to make sure that we're caring for ourselves in all of the ways, physically, emotionally, and with the emotional peace if and when we could shift out of personalizing their hurtful reactions, right? While they might be saying and doing things that are very pointed or directed at us, if like we were describing earlier and like I talk about in the book, we're able to see that as their own indicator of their own, how emotionally vulnerable and physically vulnerable it is to age and to feel threatened. And they're bringing and modeling the same tools that they learned in their own childhood, which for many of our parents, especially those that are aging now, were very limited. So if we can depersonalize, it's not about us, it never was, and take the time and space that we need away when possible, then I think we can navigate, which is universally a very, very difficult experience. 
Uh, and we have time for one last question on the topic of procrastination again, how you overcome avoidance, good question of communicating emotions and how you feel in a relationship. Avoidance again, um, the inability to communicate, the refusal to communicate, if we do know what it is that we want to communicate is usually a self-protective mechanism. It's one that I still see in myself. I have this very deep-rooted belief that, or, that I would like to avoid being what I would call an emotional burden. And hand in hand with that is the difficulty in being emotionally vulnerable, saying when I need support, because I go right back to that little girl who remembers not being emotionally supported. So why would I sh share with someone now? I almost anticipate that they're going to react in the exact same way that my mom once did, not able to be emotionally supportive of me. And like, as we've been talking about, we become a self-confirming machine. I don't say these things or I don't say them in a direct way. I assume people should mind read or I say them passive aggressively. And then what ends up happening is I recreate the same lack of support that I desperately want to avoid. So honoring again, the awareness and celebrating the awareness of whomever asks this question that you do notice that tendency in yourself, not expecting Right, the application of this new insight, oh, well, Dr. Nicole says it's important to share what's on our heart, not expecting it to be easy if it's unfamiliar, not expecting ourselves to expect anything beyond the emotional support that was once available to us, and still showing up in new choice, in new actions, being vulnerable, even though it's deeply uncomfortable, possibly even opening ourselves up to the support that's available or the support that may not be available in any given moment and then dealing with the disappointment that we might feel. So it, again, it's the embodied action of translating this insight, which can be very beautiful and empowering and inspirational into those daily lived moments, which are going to be much more difficult, much more uncomfortable, even down to our physiology. Learning how to be present to what we feel is one step of the journey, which is not just an immediate step, right? It's a more of a process. And then learning how to vulnerably share that and opening ourselves up to support when it is present and not just playing that age old tape forward, preventing ourselves from saying what we need in the first place or preventing ourselves from receiving what we need in the second place. Thank you very much for your questions. Always brilliant. Thank you so much, Nicole, just for your clarity. And there's so much more we could ask you, but people can find it all, of course, uh, within your book. So hugest thanks. Oh, gosh, Hannah, thank you. Thank you all for listening. Again, I want to continue to emphasize how inspired I am by each of us. Showing up to break cycles is quite literally life-changing work, not only for ourselves, not only for our relationships, though, in my opinion, as you'll read about in the book, for the entire world around us. So I truly wholeheartedly celebrate you. And I thank you, as always, for your interest in hearing my ideas, my thoughts. And thank you, Hannah, for this beautiful conversation. Thank you. This episode starred Nicole LaPera and was presented by Hannah McInnes. It was produced by Nicole Wong and our editor is John Doughty. If you enjoyed this week's show, you'll love our upcoming festival, How to Change Your Life, where we'll be joined by the UK's leading psychologists, doctors, writers and coaches, from Ruby Wax to David Nutt, Vex King to Viv Groskop. Pick up a ticket at howtoacademy.com. You'll also find gift tickets if you know someone else who'd love to attend. Until next time, I'm Vas Chrisadulu. Thanks for listening.